Section 19 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. John Marshall, Part 1. 1755 to 1835. The United States Supreme Court by John Bassett Moore, LL.D. While the Revolution had severed the tie which bound the colonies to the mother country and had established the independence of the United States, the task of organizing and consolidating the new nation yet remained to be performed. The Articles of Confederation, though designed to form a perpetual union between the states, constituted in reality but a loose association under which the various commonwealths retained for the most part the powers of independent governments. In the Treaty of Peace with Great Britain of 1782-83, to strong national ground was taken, but the general government was unable to secure the execution of its stipulations. The public debts remained unpaid for want of power to levy taxes. Commerce between the states, as well as with foreign nations, was discouraged and rendered precarious by variant and obstructive local regulations. Nor did there exist any judicial authority to which an appeal could be taken for the enforcement of national rights and obligations as against inconsistent state laws and adjudications. These defects were sought to be remedied by the Constitution of the United States. But, as in the case of all other written instruments, the provision of this document were open to construction. Statesmen and lawyers divided in their interpretation of it, according to their prepossessions for or against the creation and exercise of a strong central authority. Among the organs of government created by the Constitution was one Supreme Court, in which, together with such inferior courts as Congress might from time to time establish, was vested the judicial power of the United States. This power was declared to extend to all cases, in law and equity, arising under the Constitution itself, the laws of the United States, and treaties made under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States should be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and a citizen of another state, and between citizens of different states, as well as between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state, or the citizens thereof, and foreign states, citizens, or subjects in all cases affecting ambassadors other public ministers and consuls and those in which a state should be a party the supreme court was vested with original jurisdiction while in all the other enumerated cases its jurisdiction was to be appellate with the exception of the suits against a state by individuals which were excluded by the eleventh amendment the judicial power of the united states remains today as it was originally created but at the time when the Constitution was made, the importance to which the judicial power would attain in the political system of the United States could not be foreseen. The form was devised, but like the nation itself, its full proportions remained to be developed. In that development, so far as it has been made by the judiciary, one man was destined to play a preeminent part. This man was John Marshall, under whose hand, as James Bryce has happily said, the Constitution seemed not so much to rise to its full stature as to be gradually unveiled by him till it stood revealed in the harmonious perfection of the form which its framers had designed. For this unrivaled achievement there has been conceded to Marshall by universal consent the title of Expounder of the Constitution of the United States, and the general approval with which his work is now surveyed is attested by the tribute lately paid to his memory. The observance on the 4th of February, 1901, by a celebration spontaneously national of the 100th anniversary of his assumption of the office of Chief Justice of the United States is without example in judicial annals. 
it is therefore a matter of interest not only to every student of american history but also to every american patriot to study his career and to acquaint himself with that combination of traits and accidents by which his character and course in life were determined john marshall was born september twenty fourth seventeen fifty five in fauquier county virginia at a small village then called germantown but now known as midland a station on the southern railway not far south of manassas his grandfather john marshall the first of the family of whom there appears to be any record was an emigrant from wales he left four sons the eldest of whom was thomas marshall the father of the chief justice thomas marshall though a man of meagre early education possessed great natural gifts and rendered honorable and useful public service both as a member of the virginia legislature and as a soldier in the revolutionary war in which he rose to the rank of colonel his son john marshall was the eldest of fifteen children of his mother whose maiden name was keith little is known but it has been well observed by one of marshall's biographers that as she reared her fifteen children seven sons and eight daughters all to mature years she could have had little opportunity to make any other record for herself and could hardly have made a better one subsequently to his birth marshall's parents removed to an estate called oak hill in the western part of fauquier county it was here that in seventeen seventy five when at nineteen years of age he heard the call of his country and entered the patriot army as a lieutenant we have of him at this time the first personal description written by a kinsman who was an eyewitness of the scene and preserved in the eulogy delivered by mr binney before the select and common councils of philadelphia on september twenty fourth eighteen thirty five his figure says the writer i have now before me he was about six feet high straight and rather slender of dark complexion showing little if any rosy red yet good health the outline of the face nearly a circle and within that eyes dark to blackness strong and penetrating beaming with intelligence and good nature an upright forehead rather low was terminated in a horizontal line by a mass of raven black hair of unusual thickness and strength the features of the face were in harmony with this outline and the temples fully developed the result of this combination was interesting and very agreeable the body and limbs indicated agility rather than strength in which however he was by no means deficient he wore a purple or pale blue hunting shirt and trousers of the same material fringed with white a round black hat mounted with a buck's tail for a cockade crowned the figure and the man he went through the manual exercise by word and motion deliberately pronounced and performed in the presence of the company before he required the men to imitate him and then proceeded to exercise them with the most perfect temper after a few lessons the company were dismissed and informed that if they wished to hear more about the war and would form a circle around him he would tell them what he understood about it he addressed the company for something like an hour he spoke at the close of his speech of the minute battalion about to be raised and said he was going into it and expected to be joined by many of his hearers he then challenged an acquaintance to a game of quoits and they closed the day with foot races and other athletic exercises at which there was no betting he had walked ten miles to the muster field and returned the same distance on foot to his father's house at oak hill where he arrived a little after sunset the patriot forces in which marshall was enrolled were described as minute men of whom it was said by john randolph that they were raised in a minute armed in a minute marched in a minute fought in a minute and vanquished in a minute their uniform consisted of homespun hunting shirts bearing the words liberty or death in large white letters on the breast while they wore bucks tails in their hats and tomahawks and scalping knives in their belts we are told and may readily believe that their appearance inspired in the enemy not a little apprehension but we are also assured and may as readily believe that this feeling never was justified by any act of cruelty 
their first active service was seen in the autumn of seventeen seventy five when they marched for norfolk where lord dunmore had established his headquarters they saw their first fighting at great bridge where the british troops were defeated with heavy loss subsequently the virginia forces to which marshall belonged joined the army of washington in new jersey and he saw service not only in that state but also in pennsylvania and new york and later in the war again in virginia in may seventeen seventy seven he was appointed a captain he took part in the battles of iron hill and brandywine he was also present at monmouth at paulus or polis hook and at the capture of stony point he endured the winter's sufferings at Valley Forge, where, because of his patience, firmness, and good humor, he won the special regard of the soldiers and his brother officers. In the course of his military service, he often acted as judge advocate, and he made the acquaintance of Washington and Hamilton, with both of whom he contracted a lasting friendship. As to the effect of these early experiences on the formation of his opinions, Marshall himself has testified. I am, said he on a certain occasion, disposed to describe my devotion to the Union, and to a government competent to its preservation at least as much to casual circumstances as to judgment i had grown up at a time when the maxim united we stand divided we fall was the maxim of every orthodox american and i had imbibed these sentiments so thoroughly that they constituted a part of my being i carried them with me into the army where i found myself associated with brave men from different states who were risking life and everything valuable in a common cause and where i was confirmed in the habit of considering america as my country and congress as my government in seventeen eighty marshall was admitted to the bar and after another term of service in the army he began in seventeen eighty one the practice of the law in fauquier county his professional attainments must then have been comparatively limited his education in letters he had derived solely from his father who was fond of literature and possessed some of the writings of the english masters and from two gentlemen of classical learning whose tuition he enjoyed for the brief period of two years of legal education he had had according to our present standards exceedingly little it is said that when about eighteen years of age he began the study of blackstone but apart from this his legal education seems to have been gained from a short course of lectures by chancellor wythe at william and mary college and from such reading as he was able to indulge in during his military service and yet removing to richmond about seventeen eighty three he almost immediately rose to professional eminence this extraordinary man said william wirt without the aid of fancy without the advantages of person voice attitude gesture or any of the ornaments of an orator deserves to be considered as one of the most eloquent men in the world if eloquence may be said to consist of the power of seizing the attention with irresistible force and never permitting it to elude the grasp until the hearer has received the conviction which the speaker intends he possesses one original and almost superhuman faculty the faculty of developing a subject by a single glance of his mind and detecting at once the very point on which every controversy depends from seventeen eighty two to seventeen ninety five marshall was repeatedly elected to the virginia legislature the last time without his knowledge and against his wishes and he also served one term as a member of the executive council of the state but as his residence was for the most part at richmond his public service did not seriously interrupt his career at the bar his experience in state politics however served to deepen his conviction of the need of an efficient and well-organized national government and of restrictions on the power of the states in the formation of the constitution of the united states marshall had no hand he was not a member of the convention by which it was framed but when it was submitted to the several states for their action he became a determined advocate of its adoption in the virginia convention which was called to act upon that question the prospects of a favorable decision seemed at first to be most unpromising among those who opposed ratification we find the names of henry mason grayson and monroe 
names which sufficiently attest that the opposition was one not of mere faction or obstruction but of principle and patriotic feeling henry who had been one of the first in earlier days to sound the note of revolution saw in the proposed national government a portent to popular liberties in the office of president he perceived the likeness of a kingly crown in the control of the purse and the sword he foresaw the extinction of freedom in the power to make treaties to regulate commerce and to adopt laws he discerned an ambuscade in which the rights of the states and of the people would be destroyed unawares to these alarming predictions the advocates of ratification replied with strong and temperate reasoning and while madison was their leader among those who won distinction in the contest stood marshall he argued that the plan adopted by the federal convention provided for a regulated democracy the only alternative to which was despotism he contended for the establishment of an efficient government as the only means of assuring popular rights and the preservation of the public faith violations of which were constantly occurring under the existing government it is interesting to notice that in replying to the suggestion that the legislative power of the proposed government would prove to be practically unlimited he declared if they the united states were to make a law not warranted by any of the powers enumerated it would be considered by the judges as an infringement of the constitution which they are to guard against they would declare it void in the end the convention ratified the constitution by a majority of ten votes a result probably influenced by the circumstance that it had then been accepted by nine states and had thus by its terms been established between the adhering commonwealths after the organization of the national government, Marshall consistently supported the measures of Washington's administrations, including the Jay Treaty, and became a leader of the Federalist Party, which, in spite of Washington's great personal hold on the people, was in a minority in Virginia. But he did not covet office. He declined the position of Attorney General of the United States, which was offered to him by Washington, as well as the mission to France as successor to Monroe in seventeen eighty seven however at the earnest solicitation of president adams he accepted in a grave emergency the post of envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary to that country on a special mission in which he was associated with charles coatsworth pinckney of south carolina and elbridge jerry of massachusetts few diplomatic enterprises have had so strange a history when the plenipotentiaries arrived in paris the directory was at the height of its power and talleyrand was its minister of foreign affairs he at first received the envoys unofficially, but afterwards intimated to them, through his private secretary, that they could not have a public audience of the directory till their negotiations were concluded. Meanwhile, they were waited upon by various persons who represented that, in order to effect a settlement of the differences between the two countries, it would be necessary to place a sum of money at the disposal of Talleyrand as a doceur for the ministers, except Merlin, the minister of justice, who was already obtaining enough from the condemnation of vessels and also to make a loan of money to the government. The plenipotentiaries, though they at first repulsed these suggestions, at length offered to send one of their number to America to consult the government on the subject of a loan, provided that the directory would in the meantime suspend proceedings against captured American vessels. This offer was not accepted, and the American representatives, after further conference with the French intermediaries, stated that they considered it degrading to their country to carry on further indirect intercourse, and that they had determined to receive no further propositions unless the persons who bore them had authority to treat. In April 1798, after spending in the French capital six months, during which they had with Talleyrand two unofficial interviews and exchanged with him an ineffectual correspondence, Pinckney and Marshall left Paris, jerry to the great dissatisfaction of his government remaining behind 
Marshall was the first to reach the United States. He was greeted with remarkable demonstrations of respect and approbation, for although his mission was unsuccessful, he had powerfully assisted in maintaining a firm and dignified position in the negotiations. His entrance into Philadelphia had the éclat of a triumph. It was at a public dinner given to him by members of both houses of Congress that the sentiment was pronounced, millions for defense, but not a cent for tribute. This sentiment has often been ascribed to Pinckney, who is supposed to have uttered it when approached by the unofficial agents in Paris. The correspondence shows, however, that the words employed by Mr. Pinckney were, no, no, not a sixpence. The meaning was similar, but the phrase employed at Philadelphia is entitled to a certain immortality of its own. On his return to the United States, Marshall resumed the practice of his profession, but soon afterwards, at the earnest entreaty of Washington, he became a candidate for Congress, declining for that purpose an appointment to the Supreme Court of the United States as successor to Mr. Justice Wilson. He was elected after an exciting canvass, and in December 1799 took his seat. He immediately assumed a leading place among the supporters of President Adams' administration, though on one occasion he exhibited his independence of mere party discipline by voting to repeal the obnoxious second section of the sedition law. But of all the acts by which his course in Congress was distinguished, the most important was his defense of the administration in the case of Jonathan Robbins, alias Thomas Nash, by the 27th article of the Jay Treaty, it was provided that fugitives from justice should be delivered up for the offense of murder or forgery. Under this stipulation, Robbins, alias Nash, was charged with the commission of the crime of murder on board a British privateer on the high seas. He was arrested on a warrant issued upon the affidavit of the British consul at Charleston, South Carolina. After his arrest, an application was made to Judge B, sitting in the United States Circuit Court at Charleston, for a writ of habeas corpus. While Robbins was in custody, the President, John Adams, addressed a note to Judge B, requesting and advising him, if it should appear that the evidence warranted it, to deliver the prisoner up to the representatives of the British government. The examination was held by Judge B, and Robbins was duly surrendered. It is an illustration of the vicissitudes of politics that on the strength of this incident, the cry was raised that the President had caused the delivery up of an American citizen who had previously been impressed into British service. For this charge there was no ground whatever, but it was made to serve the purposes of the day, and was one of the causes of the popular antagonism to the administration of John Adams. When Congress met in December 1799, a resolution was offered by Mr. Livingston of New York, severely condemning the course of the administration. Its action was defended in the House of Representatives by Marshall on two grounds. First, that the case was won clearly within the provisions of the treaty, and second, that no act having been passed by Congress for the execution of the treaty, it was incumbent upon the President to carry it into effect by such means as happened to be within his power. The speech which Marshall delivered on that occasion is said to have been the only one that I ever revised for publication. It at once placed him, as Mr. Justice Story has well said, in the front rank of constitutional statesmen, silenced opposition, and settled forever the points of national law upon which the controversy hinged. So convincing was it that Mr. Gallatin, who had been requested by Mr. Livingston to reply, declined to make the attempt, declaring the argument to be unanswerable. In May 1800, on the reorganization of President Adams' cabinet, Marshall unexpectedly received the appointment of Secretary of War. He declined it, but the office of Secretary of State also having become vacant, he accepted that position, which he held till the 4th of the following March. Of his term as Secretary of State, which lasted less than ten months, little has been said. 
nor was it distinguished by any event of unusual importance save the conclusion of the convention with france of september thirtieth eighteen hundred the negotiation of which at paris was already in progress under instructions given by his predecessor when he entered the department of state the war between france and great britain growing out of the french revolution was still going on the questions with which he was required to deal were not new and while he exhibited in the discussion of them his usual strength and lucidity of argument, he had little opportunity to display a capacity for negotiation. Only a few of his state papers have been printed, nor are those that have been published of special importance. He gave instructions to our minister to Great Britain in relation to commercial restrictions, impressments, and orders in council violative of the law of nations, to our minister to France in regard to the violations of neutral rights perpetrated by that government, and to our minister in spain concerning infractions of international law committed chiefly by french authorities within the spanish jurisdiction of these various state papers the most notable was that which he addressed on september twentieth eighteen hundred to rufus king then united states minister at london reviewing in this instruction the policy which his government had pursued and to which it still adhered in the conflict between european powers he said the United States does not hold themselves in any degree responsible to France or to Britain for their negotiations with the one or the other of these powers, but they are ready to make amicable and reasonable explanations with either. It has been the object of the American government, from the commencement of the present war, to preserve between the belligerent powers an exact neutrality. The aggressions, sometimes of one and sometimes of other belligerent power, have forced us to contemplate and prepare for war as a probable event. We have repelled, and we will continue to repel, injuries not doubtful in their nature and hostilities not to be misunderstood. But this is a situation of necessity, not of choice. It is one in which we are placed, not by our own acts, but by the acts of others, and which we shall change so soon as the conduct of others will permit us to change it. For a month, Marshall held both the office of Secretary of State and that of Chief Justice, but at the close of John Adams' administration, he devoted himself exclusively to his judicial duties, never performing thereafter any other public service, save that late in life he acted as a member of the Convention to revise the Constitution of Virginia. It is an interesting fact that prior to his appointment as Chief Justice, Marshall had appeared only once before the Supreme Court, and on that occasion he was unsuccessful. This appearance was in the case of Ware v. Hilton, which was a suit brought by a British creditor to compel the payment by a citizen of Virginia of a pre-revolutionary debt, in conformity with the stipulations of the Treaty of Peace. During the Revolutionary War, various states, among which was Virginia, passed acts of sequestration and confiscation, by which it was provided that if the American debtor should pay into the state treasury the amount due to his British creditor, such payment should constitute an effectual plea in bar to a subsequent action for the recovery of the debt. When the representatives of the United States and Great Britain met in Paris to negotiate for peace, the question of confiscated debts became a subject of controversy, especially in connection with that of the claims of the Loyalists for the confiscation of their estates. Franklin and Jay, though they did not advocate the policy of confiscating debts, hesitated, chiefly on the ground of a want of authority in the existing national government to override the acts of the states. But when John Adams arrived on the scene, the situation soon changed. By one of those dramatic strokes of which he was a master, he ended the discussion by suddenly declaring, in the presence of the British plenipotentiaries, that so far as he was concerned he had no notion of cheating anybody, that the question of paying debts and the question of compensating the Loyalists were two, and that, while he was opposed to compensating the Loyalists, he would agree to the stipulation to secure the payment of debts. 
It was therefore provided in the fourth article of the treaty that creditors on either side should meet with no lawful impediment to the recovery in full sterling money of bona fide debts contracted prior to the war. This stipulation is remarkable, not only as the embodiment of an enlightened policy, but also as perhaps the strongest assertion to be found in the acts of that time of the power and authority of the national government. Indeed, when the British creditors, after the establishment of peace, sought to proceed in the state courts, they found the treaty unavailing, since those tribunals held themselves still to be bound by the local statutes. In order to remove this difficulty, as well as to provide a rule for the future, there was inserted in the Constitution of the United States the clause expressly declaring that treaties then made, or which should be made, under the authority of the United States, should be the supreme law of the land, binding on the judges in every state, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. On the strength of this provision, the question of the debts was raised again and was finally brought before the Supreme Court. Marshall appeared for the state of Virginia to oppose the collection of the debt. He based his contention on two grounds. First, that by the law of nations, the confiscation of private debts was justifiable. Second, that as the debt had by the law of Virginia been extinguished by its payment into the state treasury and had thus ceased to be due, the stipulation of the treaty was inapplicable, since there could be no creditor without a debtor. It is not strange that this argument was unsuccessful. While it doubtless was the best that the cause admitted of, it may perhaps serve a useful purpose as an illustration of the right of the suitor to have his case, no matter how weak it may be, fully and fairly presented for adjudication. On the question of the right of confiscation, the judges differed, one holding that such a right existed, while another denied it, two doubted, and the fifth was silent. But as to the operation of the treaty, all but one agreed that it restored to the original creditor his right to sue, without regard to the original validity or invalidity of the Virginia statute. When Marshall took his seat upon the bench, the Supreme Court, since its organization in 1790, had rendered only six decisions involving constitutional questions. Of his three predecessors, Jay, Rutledge, and Ellsworth, the second, Rutledge, after sitting one term under a recess appointment, retired in consequence of his rejection by the Senate. And neither Jay nor Ellsworth, though both were men of high capacity, had found in their judicial station, the full importance of which was unforeseen, an opportunity for the full display of their powers, either of mind or of office. The coming of Marshall to the seat of justice marks the beginning of an era which is not yet ended, and which must endure so long as our system of government retains the essential features with which it was originally endowed. With him really began the process, peculiar to our American system, of the development of constitutional law by means of judicial decisions, based upon the provisions of a fundamental written instrument and designed for its exposition and enforcement. By the masterful exercise of this momentous jurisdiction, he profoundly affected the course of the national life and won in the knowledge and affections of the American people a larger and higher place than ever has been filled by any other judicial magistrate. From 1801 to 1835, in the 34 years during which he presided in the Supreme Court, 62 decisions were rendered involving constitutional questions, and in 36 of these the opinion of the court was written by Marshall. In the remaining 26, the preparation of the opinions was distributed among his associates, who numbered five before 1808 and after that date six. During the whole period of his service, his dissenting opinions numbered eight, only one of which involved a constitutional question nor was the supremacy which this record indicates confined to questions of constitutional law. The reports of the court during Marshall's tenure filled 30 volumes, containing 1,215 cases. In 94 of these, no opinions were filed, while 15 were decided by the court. In the remaining 1,106 cases, the opinion of the court was delivered by Marshall in 519, or nearly one-half.
End of section 19.